Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Again, Acts, chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Imagine with me for a moment that you had a few minutes to spend with Jesus of Nazareth. Imagine that you were able to look Jesus Christ in the face and have a conversation with him. What kind of thoughts would be racing through your mind? What kind of emotions would you feel? What would you hope would be said? Now, imagine that in this conversation, Jesus were to look at you and to say, I have not seen a faith like yours anywhere in this land. How would you respond to that? If he looked at you and said, I have not seen a faith like yours anywhere in this land. This is the person that you know as you look into the eyes of Jesus that this is the being that created you, that loved you enough to die for you, that knows the hairs on your head and the thoughts of your heart. And to hear that statement, what would that feel like? Well, the reason I ask that question is because Jesus in his earthly ministry did make that statement. Specifically, he said, Assuredly, I have not seen such great faith, not even in Israel. He made a statement like that. Jesus the Messiah commended someone for their faith. And as we read through the New Testament, we're surprised to find out that that person wasn't one of Jesus' apostles. Wasn't one of the twelve men that spent time following Jesus and helping him in his ministry. It wasn't even a, a high priest or a member of the Sanhedrin even a Jewish teacher. In fact, the individual to whom Jesus made that statement wasn't even Jewish. He was a Roman centurion. And so as we think about the passage that was just read and a passage we find in Matthew chapter 8, I'd like for us to consider what kind of faith that is. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 5, and then we'll return to Acts chapter 10 in just a moment. While you're turning there, let me tell you how excited we are to have you here, especially on today, our big promotion Sunday. You probably noticed that there were new classrooms being used and that classrooms had been switched around. And uh, as we continue to grow, there are exciting opportunities to grow and there are also some challenges. And I appreciate our flexible teachers who worked with us this morning, making sure everyone got in the right classes, everything got settled. They have been tremendous. Yesterday, we had a wonderful group who came and moved our Tuesday-Thursday school materials 
uh, next door to the 2040 building, and we were able to move our elementary classes down there. And uh, obviously, there are some challenges in doing all that, and they did a tremendous job. We'll move our adult classes, but we won't do that until after vacation Bible school. So we've still got a couple of weeks before that happens. Today's also a special day because tonight we will be going through every book of the Bible. And as a part of that, our Pew Packers group that's been meeting here every Sunday afternoon is going to come at 5.30, a little bit earlier than usual. We're going to practice. And then after our worship services tonight, you'll get to see our children go through and name every book of the Bible and then the theme, the key word from each book. So all of our children need to be here. It's going to be an exciting night, and you won't want to miss it. And as we begin studying in Matthew chapter 8, we're introduced to another centurion. It's interesting, as Jesus is journeying through his ministry in Matthew chapter 8, the first encounter we read in Matthew of him talking to a Gentile in his ministry is right here. It's of this Roman centurion. And let's listen to what Jesus says, beginning in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 8. It says, And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority and I have soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 11. Many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Here Jesus is indicating that there will be a time when the kingdom of heaven won't be limited to the descendants of Abraham. That it won't be limited to the chosen people of God, the Jewish people. Rather, it will be open to everyone. Jesus makes that statement in Matthew chapter 8. First Gentile he meets in his ministry in Matthew. He makes that statement all the way in Acts chapter 10. We see another centurion help that statement become reality. Because Peter's going to come to Cornelius and we're going to see the gospel given to the Gentiles. Those who weren't. Jewish. And so it's very interesting that these two centurions show us that the gospel will be open to everyone, and then they show us when the gospel is open to everyone. And in fact, every time a Roman centurion is mentioned in the New Testament, it's in a positive light. Did you know that? Every Roman centurion that's mentioned is mentioned positively. And so as we look at these two and even a couple of other examples, I want us to ask ourselves how we can have the faith of a centurion. Wouldn't you like to have the kind of faith where Jesus would say, I have not seen such faith like that, not even in Israel? I mean, logically, where's the place Jesus should have looked for that kind of faith? God's chosen people. The people that, that God had led for so many years and that knew the law of God. That's where that should, faith should have been found, but Jesus found it in an unlikely place. And so if you and I want to develop that kind of faith, I think we see some very clear guidelines in this passage and the passage in Acts of how we can develop it. Faith can be a very abstract term. Sometimes we talk about faith and it's this kind of ethereal term that's hard to get our, our, our hands around, it's hard to really grasp, but every single person in here, all of us, can stand to improve our faith. I don't know where you are spiritually. Some of us have just begun our journey as Christians, have just put Christ on in baptism. Others of us have been Christians for years, but every single one of us can use practical ways, just some logical steps 
to help us improve our faith, something we can take and begin practicing today that we can use this coming week. And I think we find that if you'll flip back over to Acts chapter 10. Now that we've seen Jesus encounter this centurion in Matthew, let's go back to the scripture that Alan read for us, and let's look in the first verse of Acts chapter 10. In verse number 1, we're introduced to a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. And then look what's stated in verse 2. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Cornelius would have been a special man to have been selected as the one to whom the gospel was revealed to, the first Gentile we see converted, and that we see that the gospel is open to all those who are Gentiles. And there are a few reasons that Cornelius was was special. We know he feared God. Let's look at these four reasons that he fell into that category. If I want to have the faith of a centurion, a faith like Cornelius, what do I need to do? First of all, we see that Cornelius was a devout man. And so if I want to have the kind of faith of a centurion, the first ingredient I'm going to need to have, the first attribute I'm going to need to develop is devotion. Cornelius was a devout man. And it's interesting to see the kind of devotion it would have took to have been devoted to God as a Roman centurion would not have been an easy task. Consider a second the centurion that Jesus met back in the book of Matthew. Think about all the different barriers that he would have had to cross to reach out to Jesus. We see there were several barriers to that kind of devotion. First of all, he would have had to reach across the barrier of nationality. You see, it's easy for us to forget that the Romans were occupying the Jews. And so when Jews looked at the Romans, they saw the ones who were in charge. They saw the ones who were occupying them. In a sense, they saw their enemy. And yet this centurion was able to reach across that barrier and to reach out to Jesus. He also reached across the barrier of status. You see, a Roman centurion wasn't just any Roman soldier. You had to have served in the Roman military for at least 10 to 12 years to even be considered as a centurion. And in fact, as we look at at the story of Cornelius, Many historians say that because he was allowed to have his family stay with him and he was allowed to have servants that were with him continually, as verse 7 tells us, that indicates he was probably in the upper echelon of centurions. To be a centurion was a very high status symbol. It was something that showed success. And so to reach out to a Jewish teacher, Jesus, who was walking around teaching, as he would tell his disciples, he doesn't even have a place to lay his head. He didn't have a, a specific fixed home, he walked around in his ministry, to reach out to someone who doesn't have that same status, that would have been a barrier to overcome. And not only a status barrier, but also a barrier of wealth. He's reaching out to someone who is not wealthy by means of earthly wealth, whereas his centurion would have had servants, and he would have not only had status, but all the wealth and power that comes with it. And interestingly enough, the fourth barrier he would have reached across is the barrier of religion. You see, the Romans at that time would have believed in several different gods. They would have been polytheistic, many different gods, not just one, but many, and especially Roman soldiers, because the god Mars, the god of war, was the one that all the Roman soldiers worshipped, and they wanted to get Mars on their side so they could have victory in battle. So think of what it would have been for a centurion to believe not in many gods, but in one god, to make that step. You can imagine that everyone else around him, I would just... I would just imagine that many around him would think that was foolish. Many would think, why are you breaking from the pattern? Why are you breaking from the norm? This isn't right. 
What do you think you're doing? And so to break across that barrier would have taken tremendous faith. I say all this to say, look at Jesus' response. Do you remember what Jesus' response was to that centurion? He said, I will come and heal him. The centurion was willing to go across all those barriers, and Jesus was willing to say to a Gentile, I will go into your home, and I will do what you ask. You see, when we are devoted to God enough that we'll overcome any human barriers that are set up, then God reaches out to us. You may be here this morning, and you might have some barriers up in your life, and I don't know what those are. It might be an intellectual barrier. Maybe you're experiencing the same kind of feeling a centurion would experience, and all of your friends think it's foolish to come to church. All of your friends would think it's, it's foolish to believe in just one God or to believe in a God at all. Maybe it's an intellectual barrier that's here. Maybe it's an emotional barrier. You may be here this morning, and you've had a negative experience with Christians. Maybe you've had someone who treated you wrong and yet claimed to be a follower of Christ, and you've struggled with that. Maybe there are other negative experiences in your past that are forming barriers. I would encourage you this morning, whatever your barrier is, whatever it is that stands in your way, if you would struggle with all of us, let's break across those barriers and really study the text this morning and see what, what God has to say to us, see what the words of Jesus have to say to us, and to see what we can learn to take in our lives and maybe even break down those barriers for good. You see, true devotion overcomes all those barriers. It breaks down all those obstacles. So if I want to have a faith like a centurion, first of all, I'm going to have to be devout, devoted. I'll need devotion. That's a key ingredient. But the other three ingredients are equally as important, and we see them listed right there in order. After we see that Cornelius was a devout man in verse 2, we see that he's one who feared God with all his household. That's an interesting phrase, feared God. Sometimes when we think of fear, we immediately jump to a negative connotation. We think of, of someone who, who is scary and, and strikes terror in our hearts. And when we think of the power of God, it is something that is the force to be reckoned with. But in the New Testament, when the fear of God is used, it indicates a reverence, a respect, an awe of God's power. And so it's not necessarily a negative thing to be reverent to God. So I'm going to need devotion, and if I want to have the faith of a centurion, I'll need reverence. And it's interesting that Cornelius passed on the fear of God to those in his house. If you would consider with me a passage in Luke chapter 23, verse 47, we have the words up on the screen as we think about what took place immediately after the crucifixion. When the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. What had he seen? In the preceding verses, we saw that he had seen Jesus commend his spirit into the hands of his Father. We saw that he had seen darkness fall over the land, the veil of the temple torn in two, top to bottom. These are amazing acts of God that this centurion had witnessed. And what was his response? He glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. That's a, that's a response out of the fear of God. That is a reverence out of what God has done. And all for God's power. And that's the kind of fear that Cornelius passed on to his family. It's interesting that a true fear of God, reverence, is contagious. Cornelius was able to pass that on to those around him. The same is true for us. When we have a reverence for God, that's something contagious in our family. And, and children are going to watch their parents to see what holds their reverence, what holds their respect. And I can say that from experience, not from being a parent, but from being a child. I remember growing up, and if, if children see their parents spending time in prayer with God, 
They'll know what they value. If, if children see their parents spending time telling them Bible stories, spending time working in ministries at the church, they'll see that kind of reverence. It's contagious. And many of you were blessed the same way I was, and you had parents who made sure that their reverence was contagious, and they made sure that you caught it. And if you were in a worship service and you decided you didn't want to be reverent, they had a quick way of dealing with it. I never will forget the first time I was allowed to sit with my friends on a Sunday evening worship service. In elementary school, this is the first time I was allowed to sit with my friends. For some reason, my parents weren't there, and I'm not sure why, but I was with my grandparents. Never will forget sitting right in the middle, and I decided that it would be a good idea. I was with my friends. I decided it would be a good idea for us to write some notes to each other, and so we were writing notes, passing them back and forth. My grandfather got up. He was probably on one of the first few rows. He got up, turned around, walked down the middle aisle where everyone could see what was happening, patted me on the shoulder. I scooted over. He sat down, and he put his arm around me. And that was his not-so-subtle way of controlling what I was doing, making sure that reverence was contagious. And I'm seeing some smiles. I think we probably have some similar stories here this morning. People whose, whose parents and grandparents and other examples were making sure they knew to be reverent. And church, it's important. Cornelius passed that fear of God on to his family. And so I'm going to need devotion. I'm going to need reverence if I want to have the faith of a centurion. Look what it says next in verse 2. It says, He's one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people. So the third key ingredient we see is generosity. Cornelius was generous to the people. It's interesting that Luke, in his account, would tell us that the centurion who talked with Jesus had also built a synagogue for the Jews. He had been very generous in using his means and his power and his wealth for those who were there. And so it's, it's, it's interesting that we see that generosity played out in the life of that centurion. Also, in Acts chapter 27... There's a centurion who saves Paul's life. He not only shows generosity, not just through, through wealth or through monetary means, but through saving Paul's life, ordering his soldiers differently than they had planned just so he could spare Paul's life. He kept them from their purpose. And in Acts chapter 27, 43, that purpose describes those on the ship who were wanting to kill Paul. And so we have another example of a centurion who was showing generosity. And if we want to have a faith like a centurion, we're going to need to show generosity as well. In fact, the Bible is filled with examples of people who used power and wealth to serve God's people. You remember the story of Joseph? You remember a man who suffered so much at the hands of his own family members, sold into slavery, thrown in jail, and he gets to a point in his life where he is at the top of his game and he's at the top of the social ladder, second only to Pharaoh. Wouldn't it be about time that he served himself? But he doesn't. What does he do? He sets aside food so that everyone, and then especially his family, can be preserved through an upcoming famine. What about Esther, who was made queen over all of these people? Do you remember what, her, what Mordecai said to her as they were discussing it? Mordecai said, who knows, but you were in such a place for such a time as this. She was in that position of power so that she could serve her people. And because of Esther's actions, the Israelites were preserved from an edict that would have surely meant their death. See, the Bible is filled with examples of people who use generosity for God's people. If I want to have the faith of a centurion, I'll need generosity. And then fourthly, as we read through this verse, we see not only did he give alms generously to the people, but he prayed to God always. It sounds a lot like what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 
and 17, to pray without ceasing. That image seems to come up here in the life of Cornelius. He prayed to God always. Do you notice when the angel comes to Cornelius, when he mentions his, his alms and his prayers, he refers to prayers plural, it indicates that this was a lifestyle with Cornelius and that all of these prayers had come before God. It wasn't just one on occasion. It was prayers that Cornelius offered several times. I think it's important for us to remember. And as we think about how to apply these principles in our life, I would encourage you this week to find something that you can pray for every single day. What is the ministry here at the church that you could pray for every single day? As VBS approaches, what are some things in the lives of our children you could pray for every single day? As we prepare to leave next week on our stateside mission trip, what is something you could pray for every single day? What could you pray for continually, without ceasing, constantly? If you've ever been on a mission trip, you know the importance of prayer and the power of prayer. And we have four mission trips planned just for this summer. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every single one of us prayed for those mission trips day after day, continually? One of the most encouraging statements I've ever heard in my life was when I had returned home from a mission trip and an older lady at our congregation came up to me and she said, for all those six weeks you were gone, I got up every morning and prayed for your mission team. Now, there were some great, wonderful blessings that happened as a result of that trip. But I know those blessings weren't as a result of anything we did physically. Those blessings were a result of God's work. And God was working because people were praying. And I've often wondered to myself how successful that trip would have been if, if that one woman who was really a prayer warrior hadn't decided every morning to get up and to pray continually. I wonder what we could do this summer in all of our mission fields, in El Salvador, in the Ukraine, in Georgia with our teen mission trip stateside and with our Chattanooga stateside trip for the rest of the congregation. I wonder what we could do if we were praying continually every day for that. Cornelius knew what it meant to have continual prayers answered. It was a lifestyle for him. And so when we think of all of these aspects Cornelius had in his life, when we think of him being uh, devoted and we think of him as being someone who feared God, who showed reverence, someone who gave generously, someone who prayed continually, Cornelius was doing very well. But you know, there's still a missing ingredient in Cornelius' life. When the angel came to him, there was something Cornelius didn't have. See, Cornelius was a good man, but he wasn't yet God's man. Read with me to see what happens as we look at the rest of the story for Cornelius. Listen to how he's described in verse 22. When they were describing Cornelius, the servant, speaking to Peter, they call him a centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews. Now stop and think about that for a second. He had a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews. What kind of man would this have been? If you've read much of, of the Gospels and you see the different, uh, the different groups of Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were always fighting with each other, the teachers of the law, the scribes, there wasn't much they could agree on. And to have someone say that the entire nation of the Jews thinks good of this man would indicate he must have been an incredible man. He must have done an incredible amount of good deeds. He was a just man. And we know from his status as a centurion, he must have been an able and a talented warrior. In fact, historians often call centurions the backbone of the Roman army. 
you can imagine as the Roman Empire spreads that it was these centurions that held it together. And so here, he's got all this status and prestige and wealth, and he's done all of these good things and all of these good deeds. And if you were to stack up Cornelius' good deeds compared to his bad deeds, I would imagine just from what we know about Cornelius that the pile of good deeds would be much higher and much heavier. But even though Cornelius was a good man, he wasn't yet God's man. And even though he had all of this in his life, he still wasn't saved. He wasn't saved until Peter came to him, preached the gospel, and in a sign from God that was to show the entire world that the Gentiles were now able to be Christians, Peter came to him, baptized him, and everyone there, all of Cornelius' household, was immersed into the name of Christ. It wasn't until Cornelius had come in contact with the blood of Jesus that he was saved. I think that's an important point for us to realize. Because it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that if I can just do enough good in my life, if the good deeds in my life can outweigh the bad deeds, as if there was a scale that we put them on and we wanted to make sure that when our good deeds were stacked up to what we've done that's not been so good, that the good deeds would outweigh them. As if we could have these scales in our mind and, and put those deeds on there, we often have the mindset, whether we state it or not, that if, if my good can outweigh the bad, then I'll be all right. Then I'll be saved. It's underlined in all the culture around us. Well, he's a good man. She's a good person. It is wonderful to be good, and it's wonderful to know good people. It's wonderful that Cornelius was good. But you know what's interesting is that even a good person with all of the things in Cornelius' life still needed the blood of Christ. And no matter how good you or I are, and no matter how many good deeds we do in our lives, we need the blood of Christ to be saved. It's not enough just to be good. We must be gods. As we think about this recipe for faithfulness that we've talked about this morning, I want to encourage us to find ways we can break down those barriers and be truly devoted followers of Christ. What can you do this week at work? What can you do this week at school? I want us to find ways that we can be more reverent to Christ. What can we do when we come in the worship assembly to show reverence? What can we do in our lives to show reverence? How can we be more generous? How can we improve our generosity? Is there someone around us that we might have been blind to that really needs our help? Is there someone you know that maybe no one else here knows and you can meet a need for that person? We also need to think about what it means not, not just to have those three, but also as we think about the other two. We think about not only being generous, but also being prayerful. As Christians, is there something we can pray for constantly? What can we pray for each day? And who knows what God will do as a result of those prayers. We also need to think about obedience. See, obedience is the missing ingredient. And Cornelius, when he had all those other four in his life, was primed and ready to obey. He's ready to come in contact with the blood of Christ. And think of, think of what a monumental occasion this was, initiating the gospel for all the Gentiles. It's open to, to everyone, every nation, and every, every tribe, every tongue, every, as far as, as we can see around this earth, every person we lock eyes with is an incredible candidate to be saved by Christ's blood. As we think about that message, I want us to return to the image we opened with. If you had an opportunity to look at Jesus face to face, what would you want Jesus to say to you? You know, in the New Testament, when we read the words of Jesus, we read that we will have a choice 
as to what our Master says to us when this life ends and our eternal life begins. We can either choose for those words to be well done, good and faithful servant, or we can choose for those words to be, I never knew you. You see, it's not only a question of what kind of life we live, whether we're good people, but it's also a question of whose we are and who we submit to in our life. This morning, I would encourage all of us that we have a choice to make. We can decide what we want Jesus to say about us. He marveled at the faith of the centurion. There's only one other place in the New Testament that Jesus marvels at something, where that word is used. And that's when he marveled at the lack of faith of the Jews. So the question we have is, which do we want to be true for our lives? We can decide which words we want to hear from Jesus, not because of our own power or our own abilities, but because of what God's done for us and the ability we have to obey Him. I know there are so many here that have lived long Christian lives of service, and there are also so many people here that are good people and that are ready to take that final step. If you're one of those people this morning ready to take that final step of obedience, I would encourage you, there's no better time than right now. This might not be the last time that opportunity is offered, but what could be a better time than when you have hundreds of Christians ready to welcome you into the family? And it may be that you've been on that faith journey, that you've been a Christian for years, but as you've thought about these specific aspects of faith, there's something that's challenged you. And it could also be that you have a problem or a situation that we haven't touched on at all this morning, but you still need the help of the church. I would encourage you to look at these centurions, the one Jesus met, the one Peter preached to, and think about the kind of faith that we can develop, every single one of us in our life. Let's remember, it's not enough just to be good. We must be gods. If you want to make the decision to be gods, please come forward as we stand up and sing together.